Hello, woodworms. I'm Ray Dicterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Are you interested in the history of hand tool woodworking? Would you like to read a biography of someone working as a carpenter in the late 19th century? Or are you simply curious about village life and the cultural context of the tools we use today? Well, there's a reason that Walter Rose's book, The Village Carpenter, is frequently recommended to hand-tool woodworkers who have an interest in history. Part autobiography, part collection of vignettes, the book pulls together the anecdotes about the typical tasks of a pre-industrial workshop in a rural location. There's a poignancy to the writing that is made more intense by the author's introduction. Walter's father and uncles ran separate businesses focusing on the disparate elements of plumbing, carpentry, renovation and woodwork. But by the time he took charge of the shop at the turn of the 20th century, the rise of cheap manufactured components was beginning to erode this way of working, and as a result the family consolidated their interests to provide a one-stop renovation and repair shop. You keenly feel his sense of loss as the quiet, wood-chipful joinery practice gives way to the use of day work and labourers who were more likely to make no more shavings and instead left broken tiles or pre-built window components lying around. After the business failed, he sought alternate employment, and it was only after the First World War that he returned to doing good work with his hands. It was around this time that the book took shape, and as I read it, I can only imagine the radical changes he must have seen take place over the course of his life. The book is not overly long, at 146 pages, and there are 14 chapters with titles that include The Old Country Business, Timber, The Carpenter Shop, And I don't think you'll be surprised to discover that there are sections on furniture repairs, typical work on the farm, working on roofs, and a section called the New House that takes you through a wide range of typical carpentry and shop experiences. At a time where much of the work was done at the client's premises after a long walk to get there, you're taken along for the journey, as much as the work. But the scope of the book is wide, so look out for wooden pumps, water mills, windmill repairs and the slightly more macabre section on undertaking. There was a very real requirement to make coffins for the deceased in the area. There's an ice glossary and an index at the back of the book. It's surprisingly well done. I certainly did not expect it in what is essentially a collection of stories, but if you're trying to find that bit about Elm again, or you're not sure what a druxy is, you can jump to the back of the book and get an answer. So let's start at the beginning. The book is an account based on late 19th century recollections, anecdotes and experiences, and it's set in an English country village. I'd suggest that it's probably comparable with an experience across the Atlantic in the former colonies, but it's safe to say there may be a few minor differences. In my opinion, there are no major differences from reading this when you compare it to something like Hands Employed a Right or some of Thoreau's writings. The book has interesting photos in it. I guess this surprised me in a way, because it's always easy to have an inflated opinion of current technology and to think of the past as backwards. I went and looked this up, and was somewhat surprised to discover that the first Kodak camera was available in 1888, so pictures of sawn logs under hazel bushes, with a width that is enviable, are displayed in the first few pages, when a young Walter has an adventure in the sawpit. The descriptions are evocative, but also detailed and insightful. So I learnt in this chapter about how freshly sawn planks were shocked before final stacking, 
along with how lamp black, which I now know to be a pigment made from soot, was used to mark the planks of a log for the pit. There's detailed instructions on how to secure a log for sawing, and the types of supports, levers, tools and processes that made this possible. Alongside this, there are those personal anecdotes that a father can smile at, how the young boys were excited to travel to a faraway watermill, and wanted to play in the workshop as well, but were soon chased away by the joiners. Although they must have had some satisfaction, as they recovered the offcuts from tenons and built small castles with them. The author recollects how he made spinning tops on a lathe, and somewhat unsuccessfully made a cricket bat, before becoming interested in learning how to carve. But the pages are filled with stories of a hard life. Walter enters work at 14, and his grandfather retires in the same year at 80. As you follow his story, you'll learn how workers were expected to walk to work, and while the time was allowed to get there, in the mornings, the walk home after sunset was on their own time. Five miles a day in the dark and cold does not strike me as fun, and while bicycles were sometimes used in summer, the quality of the roads, both hard flint and mud, made this impractical in the rainy seasons. But let us not think that the people were unlearned. Early on in the book, we learn how Walter's grandfather measures the median diameter of a tree, drops an eighth for bark, and works out with a slide rule the cubic footage of wood that the tree contains. As the wood was to be sold at an auction, these calculations were undoubtedly important for the running of a successful business. You get a sense of how long these methods and traditions were in use when we discover that the farm was first acquired in 1569 by the family. And the workshop they describe feels very familiar. Well-worn benches equipped with screw vices were the workhorse of the day, with racks for smaller tools adorning the walls in convenient places. There are saw benches, the smell of pine shavings, and jealously guarded tool collections, each one only used by the joiner in question. It is here that at age 14 Walter learns to sharpen a saw, how to remove the wine from wood, and after an injury learns that chisels have a business end and should be kept away from fingers. There's a nice photo of him doing hand mortising at a low bench, and the anecdotes and experience feel like a typical woodworking education to me. I also enjoyed the detail about particular jobs. If you were that way inclined, you could mine the book for stories that could be turned into studies on the speed of the workers, but to me they gave illustrations of how hand tools need not be slow. Without the help of a power joint or a planer or table saw, a joiner considered the manufacture of a four-panel inside door to be a good day's work. I have to confess to being a slowpoke when considering what I get done in a day against this historical background. So perhaps it's fairer to say that hobbyists are slow, not hand tools are slow. There are a remarkable variety of tasks that the carpenter performed, ranging from joinery to hedge carpentry, the work done on fences and gates. And if you think this latter work is crude, I think that a careful examination of the design and details of these everyday forms will change your opinion on this. At one point there's a picture of a small decoration on a fence that I think I'd struggle to emulate with my finest tools, and it's clearly just there as an embellishment to mark the maker's skill. You might not also associate plumbing and carpentry. I certainly did not before I read the book. But there's some really interesting descriptions of how wooden pumps and pipes were made. You can almost smell the elm shavings of a freshly bored pipe and appreciate the labour once you're done with this section. I enjoy making the odd wooden screw, but I can't see myself enjoying the process of drilling two perfectly matched two-inch diameter holes from end to end of a long log to get the process started. 
That said, the artistry with which the components of the pump were made is truly admirable. Roofs, stairways and floor joists are all interesting in their own right, but the part of the book that I found most satisfying was the description of work on water mills and windmills. The engineering and accuracy of construction on this scale was incredible, and it's easy to appreciate how small differences in tolerances could magnify over time to create catastrophic effects. I'm reminded of a book I once read about ancient monumental Greek statues, where even statues that were stories high were worked with tools that more resembled dentist tools than construction workers. The book is rounded off with a discussion on how best to make a coffin. It's a topic that I'm hoping not to have an interest in for a while. And likewise a chapter on furniture appears, which certainly has more current applicability. While by no means an instructional book, the book does have the odd little tidbit of information that you might find helpful. If, however, you're looking for a detailed historical practice and text on how best you can accomplish certain tasks, I'd suggest you wait for next week's episode, where I'll cover a book that I think provides both history and instructions in abundance. But one of the aspects of the book that I liked is the historically correct use of some of the tools we see being championed, or I guess re-championed today, in the hands of hand tool woodworkers. There's a story where the author uses a shaved pony to make rungs for a ladder, or a Queen Anne Windsor chair, a task that earned the author a commendation from his grandfather. There's really a beautiful photo of the author sitting on the shavels. The first time I read the book, I glossed over parts like the description of the sticking board. Now, with a bit more interest in mouldings and a few hollow and rounds, it was easier to take note of how things were done when making sashes. And another example. Having spent some time searching for an older brace and bit stock, I can appreciate with some nostalgia this paragraph which I'll quote from the tool section of the book. It was not until I had commenced work that the steel ratchet brace appeared on the market. Before then, the wooden stocks with spring clips for securing the bits were used by all woodworkers. They were beautifully made, the clip working inside a brass-mounted socket. They also had brass inlays where the wood was cross-grained, and frequently were fitted with ebony revolving heads. Made of rich, dark grain wood and brass bright and shining with use, they were typical of old-time joinery, of the days of handwork, when piles of long shavings collected around and beneath the benches, where each double bench had a couple of trained men on it, usually cronies from long association in daily work. And then there's the bit about progressive rake, and some suggested filing angles for your saw, if you intend to do this. If you're wondering where modern makers took the idea from, here's a historical record that talks about the sheer practicality of using this arrangement when filing your saw teeth. There's a wonderful story of how Walter got his first proper tool set. A retired joiner from London, who had lived in the area, was recently deceased. His tools were put up for sale, and while the wage at the time were only four shillings per week, the tools were acquired for 35 shillings, a little over two months' salary. It's sobering to consider this cost against the affordability of the modern workshop. I'm not aware of too many people who will spend that equivalent on tools today. At the end of the book we get more questions than answers, and just as the author is left pondering the outlook of the woodworker, I feel that I too left with questions, such as the author's opening statement in the final chapter. Is there today a reasonable prospect for the youth with a creative instinct whose temperament inclines him to work in wood? On every hand the machine is doing work, 
that once called for the concentrated ability of men. It is natural that a young man should hesitate to give the best years of his life to learn a craft if in a few years his skill may not be wanted. The companion craft of wheelwright, from being a thriving trade, has during recent years almost vanished. Is the village carpenter likely to be driven out in the same way? Will his work be done by the machine, and the future know him only as the man in village history? Many of the traditional or local arts and crafts of England are on the point of disappearing, a fact that many public-minded people view with regret. It is recognised that the land alone cannot now maintain the village as it once did, and even apart from this there are many reasons for the desire to re-establish as far as possible the crafts of the countryside. There is also a growing dislike for the monotony of the machine-made, and a greater appreciation for that which, made by hand, bears the impress of the individual craftsman. As I contemplate these questions, I feel that the resurgence of interest in historical woodworking methods and tools may yet give some glimmer of hope. Certainly it seems that people with craft knowledge that are sharing it on the internet, and the discomfort people feel with a life purely driven by standardization and technology, perhaps there may yet be a place for the celebration of the skills outlined in this book. While there may never be an opportunity to drill a wooden pipe again with a hand auger, I feel that the flame of fine woodworking has been passed forever to the dedicated hobbyist, and I'm glad that there's those of you out there that are using hand tools in a similar way to our ancestors one and a half centuries ago. Every time one of us picks up a plane or a handsaw, instead of flipping the switch on a power tool, we have a deep connection to the author's experience in this book. And I hope there will come a time again where individual quality and craftwork is rightly celebrated for its own beauty and charm, and that our children will have the skills to construct wonderful pieces of furniture for their own houses. So in conclusion, The Village Carpenter, the classic memoir of the life of a Victorian craftsman, is 146 pages long, and it's written by Walter Rose. It's published by Linden Publishing, and you can find the book on Amazon. As at February 2020, it costs $11.50 for either the Kindle edition or the paperback, but a used copy can usually be found for around $7 or $8. If you're looking for a good book to read that will give you insights into the work performed by the jack-of-all-trades village carpenter, this book is an excellent choice. It gives a flavour of the times, and the photographs help me to imagine this time more vividly. I'm giving the book a 7 out of 10 in the category Historical, and a 7 out of 10 in the category Autobiography. While I think a book like Nancy Heller's book, Making Things Work, Tales from a Cabinet Maker's Life, might be a more personal autobiography, and certainly books like the 18th century American Furniture are better historical records, so for this reason I'm not giving the book a top rating in either category. However, the list of books I've chosen to review in this first series was the subject of much thought and debate. I've included this book because I think it's one of the classic texts, and I think it's a book every hand-tool woodworker should read at some point. If you have even the vaguest interest in the history of the craft, it's worth buying. Treat yourself and pick up a copy, so the next time you're spending a few evenings around the fire on a cold winter's evening, you'll have something worthwhile to read. So that's it for now, woodworms. And remember, go keep the fire of fine woodworking burning by making something in your shop this week. And keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest, or one you're considering buying that you'd like me to review, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. I appreciate any input for the show. 
you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of the book for the library and future episodes.